We are in John chapter 16 today. We're going to look at verses 5 to 15 as we talk about the Spirit's role in the world and also in the life of believers. Last week we talked about, uh, as we began our series on the Holy Spirit, which we're calling Frequency. Got this cool logo that Scott and Sally made for us about kind of tuning in to hear the Holy Spirit. And we talked about how the Holy Spirit has often been called the forgotten God. Francis Chan wrote the book nine years ago called Forgotten God and points out that for many of us who didn't grow up in a charismatic tradition, we have all but ignored the Holy Spirit and really neglected his his work and not really been knowledgeable of, of what he does. I was reading a book this last week that Lisa Shaw gave me called Surprised by the Spirit, by the Power of the Spirit, a book by a guy named Jack Deere. He's a former uh, faculty member of Dallas Theological Seminary. Amazing book, highly recommend it. Surprised by the power of the Spirit. And he talks about how so many of us really believe things about the Holy Spirit based on what we've heard other people tell us rather than our own careful study of the Scriptures. And I would agree with that. For many of us, we, we believe certain things about the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit, and on and on and on, because we've heard other authoritative, authoritative friends or pastors say things, rather than us going to the Scriptures and doing a careful study. And that's one of the reasons why we want to do this study this summer, is just to look at Scripture and get a full picture of who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. In our passage this morning in verse 7, Jesus tells the disciples that it will be to their advantage If he goes away, because if he goes away, he will request of the Father and the Father will send a helper, the Holy Spirit. While Jesus was with his disciples on this earth, he had a physical earthly body. The Godhead came down in the person of Jesus Christ and took on human flesh. We call that the incarnation. And with the incarnation, with the physical body, Jesus took on the limitations of a human body. He couldn't be everywhere at the same time with his disciples. He was limited to time and space. And that's one of, he, he could have been everywhere, but then he would have, he would have violated what it means to be human. And scripture upholds that he was fully God and fully man at the same time. And so that's kind of that thing that he juggled. But he said that when the Spirit comes, there would be no limitations. Everywhere they would go, the Spirit would be with them. Before this, life was a series of hellos and goodbyes. That's one of the things that I look forward to so much in heaven and in our glorified bodies too, which, as I've said, I believe will be here on earth with a reperfected earth. But there will be no more hellos and goodbyes. There will be uninterrupted fellowship. And the person who makes that possible is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the promise that Jesus had made in Matthew 28:20, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. That is made possible specifically because of the Holy Spirit. Well, this morning I want to talk about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of his main roles in the world, as we are going to find out in our passage in the, and in the life of believers. And I was reading this week that from 1991 until the year 2007, Fuller Seminary School of Intercultural Studies conducted a survey among 750 Muslims who had converted to Christianity. And they surveyed them, um, they, they came from 50 different ethnic groups, 30 different countries, 
And the survey was <clears throat> the nine most cited reasons for why they converted to the Christian faith. And what I found so interesting in this is that the conviction of the Holy Spirit was one of those that they cited. But number one, they were drawn to Christianity because it was their perception that Christians actually practiced what they preached. Number two, that Christians appeared to have loving marriages in which women were treated as equals. Number three, that Christian-to-Christian violence seemed less prominent than Muslim-to-Muslim violence. Fourthly, that the prayers of Christians had healed the disabled and delivered others from demonic powers. Fifthly, that the Quran had produced profound disillusionment because of its accentuation of God's punishment more than his love and the use of violence to impose Islamic laws. Sixthly, they said that God used visions and dreams to influence their conversion and their decisions. Seventh, they said Muslims can never be certain of their forgiveness and salvations, salvation as Christians can. I remember years ago at Ventura Missionary, I was there for 14 years as a pastor, and I was asked one Sunday to do a sermon on comparative religions. And we looked at like eight different world religions and kind of broke it down to what they believe about salvation, what they believe about the afterlife. And, and it, invariably, every other religion other than Christianity, you never had any assurance as to whether you were going to heaven and where you would be in the afterlife. For those that believed in reincarnation, the hope was that maybe they would come back in a better life form. But none of these religions could say with certainty and assurance that there was an afterlife and that they would achieve that. Well, the eighth thing that they were uh, influenced by is that as they read the Bible, the converts had been convicted of its truth. And I found that so powerful. Many times you and I are timid in our ability to share our faith with other people. And we forget that it is not any words of eloquence or knowledge on our part. It's simply, many times, putting Scripture in the hands of others. That's what I love about the Gideon Society. They're the ones that put the, the Bibles in the hotel rooms. And they hand out Bibles on campuses. You know, if, if we simply buy somebody a Bible or hand them, you know, uh, the Gospel of John or anything to get them reading, God promises that he convicts through the truth of what they read. The ninth thing that they mentioned is that converts were attracted to the idea of God's unconven- uh, unconditional love. Unconventional love as well, because unconditional is by nature unconventional. There's not much in this life that's unconditional. But we want to talk about that ministry of conviction this morning. And as I said, we're going to look at John 16, beginning in verse 5. I'm reading from the New American Standard today. This is what John says. But now I am going to him who sent me. Jesus is talking. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away... The helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. 
I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are also Mine. Therefore, this is why I said He will take of Mine and disclose it to you. We're talking about the conviction of the Holy Spirit today, and that word convict is very interesting in the original language, in the Greek. It was a word that was used to describe the cross-examination of a witness, or for someone on trial, or for an opponent uh, in an argument. And it always had this idea of cross-examining people until they could see and admit the error of their ways, or until they could acknowledge the force of some argument that maybe they hadn't considered or appreciated before. This word was also sometimes used by the Greeks to describe the action of conscience upon a person's mind and heart. The action of conscience upon a person's heart and mind. As we know, cross-examination has at least two clear benefits. One is it can convict a person of a crime committed or a wrong that's been done. And secondly, it can convince a person of the weakness of a particular case and the strength of another. And in our passage today, this word convict in verse 8 carries both meanings. It carries the meaning of convict and convince. Convict and convince. And point number one is that the Holy Spirit will convict the world regarding sin. We find that in verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Did you know that Scripture says that it's actually a sin to not believe in Jesus? That sounds kind of harsh or kind of extreme. But Jesus did not leave heaven and come down to earth and take on human flesh and dwell among us for three years and then be brutally murdered on the cross so that we could have the privilege of being indifferent to him. To not acknowledge or believe in Jesus as who he is, God in human flesh, is synonymous with the sin of blasphemy because it is refusing to acknowledge his true identity. It is refusing to ascribe deity to him. And so we see this in the Gospel of John. For John, the quintessential sin that he writes about is not believing in Jesus. We see that in the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 11. It says, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him, did not believe in Him. He goes on to say, But as many as received Him or believed in Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed upon His name. John 15, Jesus said, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Two verses later, John fifteen twenty four, he said, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. If I hadn't raised the dead, if I hadn't given sight to the blind, if I hadn't healed the lepers and caused the, the lame to walk, then maybe they could say that they had an excuse for not believing in me. But I did unprecedented things in my ministry. And so they are without excuse for not acknowledging the truth of who I am. 
Jesus said it kind of bluntly in John 8, 24. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. What does that mean, I am He? Unless we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One, God's Son, the second member of the Trinity, come in human flesh, Jesus said we will die in our sins. The Gospel message in a nutshell is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul tags onto that Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the Gospel in a nutshell. I've sinned, you've sinned, everyone on this planet has sinned. Because sin is not defined by how good we are in comparison to those around us, but in comparison to a righteous and holy God. And Jesus Christ is that holy, absolute, and standard. And we find that all of us fall short when compared to Him. And the wages of our sin is death. But God's free gift is salvation, eternal life through Jesus. That's the message in a nutshell. And it's the Holy Spirit's mission to convict and convince the world of these things. C.S. Lewis, while attending Magdalene, one of the sister colleges of the University of Oxford in England, converted to theism in the spring of 1929. He was an atheist before this, and he converted to theism, believing in God in the spring of 1929, and then later he converted to Christianity in 1931. And he describes his conversion in his book, Surprised by Joy. And listen to what he says. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene. Night after night, feeling whenever my body lifted, even for a second from my work, whenever my mind lifted for even a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him of whom I so earnestly did not want to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. On May 22nd, 1929, I gave in, and I admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility that will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compassion is our liberation. C.S. Lewis said, I came in kicking and screaming. I had to be dragged in. And later I came to appreciate the great compassion and mercy of God that would accept someone even as as me in in that condition. And that's because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit that came upon him. I was reading an author, a theologian this week, that traced the, the activity of the Holy Spirit even back to the book of Genesis. And I know the typical verses that we read that the Spirit was hovering over the the voidless form of the earth and was present in creation. But one of the things I hadn't considered was in Genesis 6, when God said, My Spirit will no longer strive with men. 
And that word strive in the Hebrew means to contend with or to argue with and or to plead the case. And God was saying that his spirit was at work even back in that time of judgment when Noah was was asking people, pleading with people to turn to the Lord so they could avoid the flood, the judgment of God, and how people just were indifferent and apathetic and did not care. And there came a point when God said, my spirit will just no longer strive with men. And the judgment came. Well, when the crucified Jesus... When the Jews crucified Jesus, they didn't believe that they were sinning. They actually thought that they were serving God in this. But later in the book of Acts, when Peter preached that sermon in Acts chapter 2, about Christ and the crucifixion, the text says that the people present that day were pierced to the heart because they realized for the first time that they had sinned that they had committed the greatest crime in history, that they had taken the Son of God and nailed him to a tree, that they had condemned and killed an innocent man. And it was the Holy Spirit that brought that conviction and awareness and the knowledge to them. Bible scholar and pastor N.T. Wright retells the story of an archbishop who was hearing confessions of sin from three hardened teenagers in church. All three boys were trying to make a joke out of it, so they they met with the archbishop and confessed to a long list of ridiculous and grievous sins that they hadn't committed. It was all a joke. The archbishop, seeing through their bad practical joke, played along with the first two, who ran out of church laughing. But then he listened carefully to the third prankster. And before he got away, told the young man, Okay, you have... Confessed your sins. Now I want you to do something to show your repentance. I want you to walk up to the far end of the church and I want you to look at the crucifix, at the picture or the hanging of Christ on the cross. And I want you to look into his eyes and say, You did all of that for me, but I don't really care that much. I want you to say that three times. So the boy went up to the front of the church and looked at the crucifix and stared into the eyes of Christ and said, You did all of that for me, but I don't really care that much. Then he said it again. But then he couldn't say it a third time, because he broke down in tears. And the archbishop telling the story said, The reason that I know this story is that I was that young man, and I was brought under the conviction of God. There's something about the cross Something about Jesus dying there for us, which leaps all over our theoretical discussions and all the possibilities of how we explain it this way or that way. And it seizes us. It grasps us. And when we are grasped by it, somehow we have a sense that what is grasping us is the love of God. What a beautiful explanation of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It is the love of God taking hold of us and seizing us. Scripture says that all of us are God's creation. We rightfully belong to Him. Satan, the ruler of this age, has seized us and taken us wrongfully. And God desires that which He made and created. He longs to be reunited with His creation. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit is the way in which God seizes us and reclaims us for himself. 
Well, secondly, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness. Verse 10 talks about that. John writes, And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will no longer see me. And the question is asked, what does righteousness have to do with going to the Father? Well, as we said, we, the Jews in crucifying Jesus were signifying that they saw him as unrighteous because they believed that only wicked people were hanged on a cross. That was a statement of a sign of God's curse. Back in Deuteronomy 21, it says the one who is hanged on a cross or crucified is accursed of God. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so this is, this is what was happening. Through Christ's resurrection and ascension, it proved that God found his sacrifice pleasing that Christ's atoning work on the cross was accepted by God. Otherwise, God would have never raised him from the dead. God would have never had him ascend back to his right hand in glory if God had rejected his sacrifice, if God had found him unrighteous and not a worthy sacrifice for our sins. But the fact that Christ resurrected, the, the fact that he ascended is proof that God accepted his finished work on the cross, and that his demands were satisfied in Christ. This was the convicting, convincing work of the Holy Spirit. It's the same convicting, convincing work that caused the Roman centurion who stood at the foot of the cross, looking at a criminal who had been condemned by the world's standards, and said, truly, this was the Son of God. It was the same convincing, convicting work of the Holy Spirit that caused Saul of Tarsus as he was on his way to on the Damascus Road to be struck by that blinding light. And when he asked, who is it? Who who is responsible for this? The voice that responded is, I am Jesus whom you have been persecuting. And Saul realized, oh man, I've been on the wrong side. Not only that, he realized, as, as I stood there and watched Stephen's death, And I saw him look up into heaven. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus still lives because he's speaking to me now. Saul had a great awakening there, and that was all brought about by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can cause men and women and boys and girls to look at someone like Christ who was condemned in the world's eyes and in him and in his life see that he's the Savior provided by God for us and for our sins. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can convict and convince us that Jesus Christ is truly righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become God's righteousness through him. That's the work of the Spirit. Well, speaking on righteousness, someone wrote, and they asked the question, how righteous are you? How righteous are you? If you can start the day without caffeine, if you can get going without pet pills, if you can always be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when your loved ones are too busy to give you any time, 
If you can overlook it when those you love take it out on you and through no fault of your own, something goes wrong in their life. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment. If you can ignore a friend's limited education and never correct him. If you can resist treating a rich friend better than a poor friend. If you can face the world without lies and deceit. If you can conquer attention without medical help. If you can relax without liquor or alcohol. If you can sleep without the aid of drugs. If you can honestly, if you can say honestly that deep in your heart you have no prejudice against creed, color, religion, or politics, does that sound like a righteous person? Well, this author concludes, then my friend, you are almost as good as your dog. (laughs) Really, I mean, that puts it in perspective. We look at all these things that we perceive to be righteous. And even if we fulfilled all these, we're only approaching the level of righteousness that our dog has. My golden retrievers at home, they're, they're this. They are faithful. They are loyal. They're loving. They, they just treat you the same all the time. They're unconditional in their love. I can't even approach the righteousness of my golden retrievers. And folks, Scripture says that Jesus Christ is our standard. He is that measure that we need to mark ourselves against. The Holy Spirit not only convicts the world of sin, but he also convinces us of God's righteousness. He shows sinners that Jesus is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. And no one goes to heaven. No one goes to the Father except through him. Well, the final ministry and mission of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of judgment. And John says in verse 11, And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Speaking of Satan, John writes in John chapter 12, verse 31, Now the judgment is upon the world, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. Paul says in Colossians 2.15, When God had disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. God used the crucifixion, the death of Christ, to disarm Satan and all of his power. He used it to vindicate Jesus, to prove that he was righteous and approved of God. And he used it as judgment upon the world and judgment upon Satan. The death and resurrection of Jesus were a condemnation or a judgment upon Satan, the prince of this world. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Therefore, since... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself, meaning Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. The author of Hebrews is saying that since you and I are clothed with human flesh, God came down through the incarnation and himself also took on human flesh, that he might die in the flesh, and render powerless forever the one who had the power over death, which is the devil. The world is pronounced guilty. This was proved and vindicated as Jesus rose from the dead. Proved and vindicated as he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. Most translations have that word righteousness instead of vindication, but vindication means to be shown as right. 
And that's exactly what God did in having Christ rise and ascend back to the right hand. He's in the right. The world is in the wrong. The world murdered him. And the point that's being made in our passage is that the Spirit reverses the world's verdict against Jesus. It's now the world that is pronounced guilty. How ironic that in putting Jesus on trial, the world has put themselves on trial. The world has condemned themselves. And that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, of reversing that guilty verdict. And now that it's placed upon you and I in the world. John explains it this way in chapter 3 of his gospel. Right after that famous John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. John writes right on the heels of that, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in Jesus is not judged, but he who does not believe in Jesus has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, but that men loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were wicked. God did not send Christ into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might live through him. But the judgment is this, to reject Jesus is to reject your only offer. Of salvation. It's to reject the only hope that you and I have. That's the gospel. Well, the Holy Spirit also convicts us and convinces us, makes us aware of the judgment to come. That one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And perhaps no passage in the New Testament says that better than Romans 2, which reads, But because you are stubborn, and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers through Jesus. But He will pour out His anger and wrath, on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There's a day of accountability coming, a day of judgment, and we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, of God. Christians, God will look upon Christ's righteousness and not ours, and we will be spared judgment. That's the beauty that, that we can be assured of and, be, and take hope in. But those who don't have Christ are going to have to stand on their own merits. And we've read throughout Scripture that those merits are not good enough because they don't compare with Christ. The application for today is simple. When we're convicted of our sin through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and when we're convinced that Jesus Christ is the righteous one provided by God, there's really only one response. And that is to accept Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord. When we're convicted of our sin, when we realize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that our sin separates us from a righteous, holy God, 
And then when on top of that, we're convinced of the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus. There's really only one solution, to accept Christ as our Savior. Because Jesus is the one who spares us from the judgment to come. Let's pray.